Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dignities and Disasters. This is Robert McNaughton with Integral Centered Leadership. As always, Dignities and Disasters is a series where we attempt to unpack both sides uh, around typically diver uh, divisive topics. Um, I, I tend to track for topics for this show are places where I've gone through significant transformations in my life as far as you know, taking one perspective in a really strong way. And then all of a sudden I see the world different and I see other people going through that same thing and feel like that could be helpful. Uh, and, and generally it's where I kind of look out, out of the world and be like, wow, people see things in a really different way. And I think that's, that's quite prescient to what's happening these days. Things are, are, are very polarized. And so it's, it's, it's our purpose here to see if we can flesh out both sides of the argument to be, become more sophisticated, more informed about topics as opposed to fundamentalist or absolutist about a rigid perspective. So that's uh, the skinny of the show. Today on the topic, we are doing wealth and money. And I'm very happy to have my good long friend, uh, Greg Berry, collaborator, uh, co-creator, colleague, ski buddy, backcountry explorer. Um, we, we have a, a lot of things in common we'll talk about in our career uh, in a minute, uh, but very glad that I get to have your help unpacking this topic today, Greg. Um, how are you doing? Uh, Robert, everything's uh, just great in these COVID days. Um, mostly I'm enthusiastic for this conversation because I just find that your voice and perspective is uh, is not well represented out there in the world of media. So I'm glad to be uh, participating and in this conversation with you, but also super glad to be supporting this new initiative of yours and, and watching it grow and, and really uh, hopefully help people gain a bit of nuance and understanding of some of these complicated issues. Awesome, Greg. Okay, well, great. For the listeners, I'm going to just give a, a more of a formal introduction of you. Um, so these days, you are operating as a whole wealth advisor, and you're with Conscious Capital Wealth Management, which is, as the name implies, it's a unique wealth advisory firm that's dedicated to integrating mindfulness into every aspect of the business. And because of how I've been tracking you in, in your growth with this new project is why you're the perfect person to help me unpack this topic today. Um, as, a, as a whole wealth advisor, which I actually want to, to hear what you have to say about what that means, um, you, as I understand it, you design custom integrated wealth plans that include and transcend traditional financial planning and investment strategy. Um, and you typically tend to work with people who uh, have an evolved worldview already, who are already kind of operating with a little bit more altitude than normal. But you also work with traditional business owners and also people that are going through life transitions. Beyond that, what you've been doing for the past several years, you know, I've known you for the past 25 years, you've been an advisor to entrepreneurs, to investors, philanthropists, and executives um, in, you know, this, this entrepreneurial ecosystem that is Boulder, Colorado, that is non-traditional by nature. And particularly focusing on more holistic and responsible approaches and what we call, you know, impact investing, quote unquote, which I think we should unpack more as we get into this. And the way you and I met was when you were incubating and beginning to put together the, the impact hub uh, in, in Boulder, which is a, a co-working space, but also was a, a networking nexus for impact entrepreneurs in Boulder 
to to come together to find talent to find investment and it's this intersection that we don't find very often where you know typically there's like traditional way of doing things and there's people that are trying to tear down the traditional way of doing things and so it's like no we're going to do more business in a more impactful responsible way uh you in, in many ways, led the charge with that, or you know, held the mantle in Boulder for the tenure of while you were you know co-founding and directing Impact Hub, and of course, I was running the Integral Center at the same time, and so we got to commiserate on <laughs> the trials and tribulations of conscious community leadership. And I think that we're both glad that we're not in space-based businesses right now, as COVID wipes through, and the governor just put us back into code red. Um, and uh, man, could you imagine trying to run our businesses from a few years ago now? It would be a talk about a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I have a soft space in my heart for all the, you know, restaurant owners right now that have to close up, you know, right when they were getting their business going again. So save that for more conversation later. Um, but let's get back into the topic. And so, I just gave that introduction, a high-level overview. Feel free to clean it up in your own language. But what does it mean to be a, a whole wealth advisor? Yeah, thanks for asking, Robert. And and it was uh, more than clean enough. You know, it's the the the, the old stories are uh, you know become less and less relevant by the minute here as we move through uh, evolution and transition. But what it means to be a whole wealth advisor is you know yes, in the terms of traditional wealth management. We do uh, asset management, right? Which means we manage your investments and, um, and, and other core financial assets. Um, but much more than that, and we, and we do financial planning and scenario planning and all the things that people want to want to know from a traditional wealth management guy sitting in a, you know, a lot of them sitting in a, a stiff white shirt um, behind a mahogany desk, right? Um, right. And so as a whole wealth advisor, we do all of that work and we integrate it with a much deeper understanding of the entirety of what it is to be human, right? And so we look at that through a lens of multiple forms of capital. So what you're, what you're used to talking about is financial capital with your investment advisor. And you might also talk about what we call material capital. Material capital is really about um, your house and your business, right? Sort of non-liquid assets, that um, that you own and, and that really often are, are large stores of value, but are not particularly liquid. Yeah. Then we think about social capital, right? And social capital is this interesting space of you know community and friendships and influence, and also family, right? And your relationship with your family. And so when we think about family, yes, we think about people who may be inheriting money and, and people who may have to take care of their parents in their old age, as as um, people are having children and and looking at multi-generational financial planning, we take all of the financial tax um, and, and other considerations into account, but we also understand the relational side of it, right? And yes. what is it to be from a family of wealth? And what is it to have the burden of caring for future generations? And how are you actually with all of those things? And so we really start to get into it there at the, at the social capital level. At the same time, we think about living capital. Living capital is Mother Earth. Right. And, you know, so you can have as much money as you want, but if there's not, you know, fresh water to drink and fresh air to breathe, it, it becomes kind of less and less relevant how wealthy you are. Um, For sure. We, we also think about your human capital, right? And your human capital really being your health, your mental health, your physical health, but also your career and your legacy and the work that you do in the world. And then we think about purpose, right? And purpose is this notion. Sometimes people talk about it in terms of spiritual capital. 
but your purpose is what are you here to do? You know, we have a strong belief that you're here for a reason. And so we really focus our work on all those forms of capital to find a way that you are able to align all those different types of capital with your purpose and with your spirit and able to fully express yourself as a human, um, especially those of us who are fortunate to create surplus in our lives to really organize that wealth um, in a way that is truly reflective of your own values. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I'm just reflecting back on, you know, when I had a wealth advisor earlier on in my career. And of course, he was always interested in what I was doing with my life relationships and wouldn't be calling it purpose kind of like, okay, great. How's that career? You know, what's your trajectory there? It was like kind of tacit interest, which you would expect is, is kind of a human courtesy. But when I work with you as a wealth advisor, it's like, no, there's, there's much more of a, a, it's an, an agenda item within the model that you're working with to say, it's like, okay, now what, what projects are on your plate right now? What does that look like a year and five years out? And then we're looking at my finances through all those lenses, um, bringing in all these perspectives, which is, I mean, for me, it's just, it, it makes sense. It's, it's smarter, <laughs> obviously, because these are all the things that are impacting my financial decisions. So to have someone who is, has an educated perspective around that as, as an advisor is at, at this point, obviously a no-brainer. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that, uh, those kind words. You know, the other way that we really see whole wealth advice uh, manifest itself is both in uh, coaching that we do with, um, with people who have either uh, created a large amount of wealth and or inherited it, although it can be hard sometimes, and I think we'll get into this in some of the dignities and disasters conversation, it can be hard for people who don't have wealth to understand the difficulty of actually having wealth and inheriting wealth and the energies and challenges that come with that. Um, but we're actually quite uh, understanding and empathetic about those issues. And so we work with very progressive, very wealthy people to help them organize their self around this big legacy. And, you know, without revealing any meaningful information, I have one client who feels like he's Frodo and he's carrying this uh-huh. heavy weight of legacy, right? And he's got to carry the weight to the fire to burn it in Mordor. And and it's a very real story for it. him. And, and not to not to diminish it, right? This is a person who's done, you know, 25 years of spiritual and personal development and has really come to understand the, the meaningfulness, you know, because a lot of the wealth that comes to progressive people came from not so progressive activities, right? Oil and gas and coal and, and other kind of exploitative things that we wish weren't happening now. And so they're very real issues. We also work with business owners to help them really understand. Um, what does it mean to exit your business? And what are the what happens after that? And how do we actually design an exit that serves your purpose and serves your spirit in a way that is much more than just about cashing out and putting 20 or $200 million in the bank? So um, yeah. those are the, that's the kind of work that we do. It's, and, it, and it is truly holistic and multi-generational. And, and then a lot of times we're, it's a, it's a deep and intimate work. You know, we're, we're sort of part psychotherapist, part financial analyst, part, uh, um, you know, and part sort of good friend, you know, it's, it's at least once a month, if not more frequently, where I hear, I've never told anyone this, but, you know, and so, and so we get in there, you know, money brings up as we're going to get into money brings up some really intimate issues for people and and really deep wounds and challenges from their childhood and, and all the things come up when you really get into these questions of how do you get your capital aligned with your values? 
this is great, Greg. I think this is teeing up the perfect context for us to be able to to tease this apart and unpack it. Uh, I love the the, the Frodo um, metaphor there for this, and it's like the the old proverb is with great wealth comes great responsibility, which uh, was actually coined by Bill Gates. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, and it's, it is true. It's like, you know, it, it's, it's easy to, to look up at the ivory tower and, and, and project all the negativity there, but the, there is a great burden and responsibility and opportunity for, especially those that are, you know, quote unquote, growing more conscious with what, how they want to live their lives. Um, a, a really beautiful opportunity to transmute um, a lot of historical challenges in that direction. So with all that being said, let's dive into the rigor of, of our work on our plate today with why do people you know, have tend to have like a negative first impression of money. And of course, I'm not going to say all people have that because <laughs> it's more like, you know, relating to the typical people that I come across in my communities, yeah. in my generation, uh, which is, is going to be colored in a certain way. Um, but I also think of like the Pink Floyd song, you know, money, you know, right. like, yeah. um, and just that, that, oh, those greedy, you know, money people, like, where is this coming from? And what are we talking about here? What's valid in this judgment? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, I think, you know, one of the first things that I think it's important to acknowledge, and, you know, just to take a quick step back is, um, you know, I, for a long time, I've kind of outgrown this label, but in some ways, not so much. I, I kind of referred to myself as a pragmatic radical, nice. right? Which is to say, like, I think that big things need to change in our society, but I don't think that like dreaming up wild new systems is the way to solve them. I think that we have to make pragmatic and practical step-by-step -step moves from here to wherever we think there might be. And so um, I, I understand and, and sometimes empathize with the sort of burn it down notion that we sure. see. You know, we certainly saw represented, uh, I'll go a little historical, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, when we had the riots in Seattle, right? And it was, we were protesting the WTO and we were smashing buildings and trying to burn the whole system down. And I understand that feeling. So why do they want to do that? Well, first, I think there's an element of jealousy, right? Mm -hmm. there, there's, there's this big wealth divide and there's haves and have nots. And generally speaking, and, and I know this is not always applicable and I'm probably going to take some heat for it later, but generally speaking, like people that don't have a lot of money resent those who do. Um, simply because of that gap. And so I think it's important to acknowledge sure. that as one of those areas. Now, that being said, that's probably often well-grounded, right? And I think that what we sure. can see in terms of um, the wealth divide more meaningfully is the opportunities presented to those who have wealth are disproportionate to those who are presented to those who don't, right? And so it is actually unfair, right? The system is inherently unfair. And, you know, I think it's important to remember too regarding capitalism, and I know you guys just recently did a, a podcast on this, but it's interesting to remember that capitalism was a massive improvement over feudalism, you right. know? And so, you know, and so I understand that we, we may be towards the end of a, a meaningful or a, a healthy use of capitalism, but it did some good things in its time, right? And so I think that the, notion of this old paradigm narrative around money is that having some is good and having more is better, right? And so there becomes this sort of hoarding impulse, right? And that it's easier to make money when you have money. 
right? And so friends and people and clients that I know who have you know extraordinary excesses and surpluses of money are able to do things that other people just can't do. They're able to have access to different kinds of investments that make them even more money, For sure. right? They're able to take risks that somebody who's really worried about paying the mortgage next month just can't afford to take. You know, and it's really interesting to see there's, there's some interesting research out you know, there used to be this notion for a long time that there was an entrepreneurial gene, right? And some of us were just better, um, better wired coming out of the womb, better wired to be entrepreneurs, higher risk tolerance, you know, higher, more intellectual, whatever it may be. And it turns out that the data doesn't actually support that. The data supports the fact that if you're able to take risks, if you have the financial cushion to take risks, even middle class, much less upper middle class and, and the truly rich, um, that you're much more likely to start businesses because if you fail, you'll still be okay. You know? And so I think that the big, one of the big problems is that um, those opportunities aren't even, and yes. that the, and that the cost of making more money on money is borne by us all. Right. And we talk about that in terms of externalities, right. And we can see it today in um a very easy way to understand it is the BP oil spill that happened whenever that was 10, 15 years ago um, in the Gulf of uh, Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Exxon or BP rather, you know, was taking all the profits and, and all the great um, sort of benefits of being one of the world's major oil producers. Um, but when there was a spill in the Gulf, everyone who lived along the coast of the Gulf and the fishermen and, and, and many people suffered the consequences of an oil spill that potentially could have been prevented with a lower level of profitability and a higher investment in safety. Very simplistic example, and I know people who know more about oil and gas probably argue with me about the nuances of, of this case, but we bear the cost of that, not just BP, right? So they're able to be profitable while we all pay the cost. The same is true, of course, more broadly with air quality, with rising uh, you know, global temperatures, uh, more wildfires, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I yeah, this is great. And as you said, you know, it, we did the the previous recordings on capitalism, but also on socialism, where we talk a, a lot about wealth inequality and how that tends to to lead towards people wanting revolution uh, when when it's less about how well am I doing, but more about you know, wait, those guys are doing so well over there. And then, and then it does kind of go into a, a runaway automation where it's not like someone is consciously, it's like, oh, I have better instruments to grow my money. It's just on autopilot because yep. people are making money, helping people make their money better. And then that's where it starts to get into a, a, the negative externalities that you're starting to, to talk about here and the tragedy of the commons about yep. we have this common space the planet, planet Earth in this case, and we all have to deal with it. And it's and it's a lot easier to turn your head the other way when our focus is on driving the bottom line. Um, so I think I think you're doing a good job here of <laughs> reminding us all why uh, it, it's easy to have some nausea when we think about runaway uh, greed in in regards to well, wealth. It's interesting too to understand the power of interest, right? If you have money, and, and essentially, so you know, if you have money and then you earn money on that money, like you're not earning money on your labor, you're not earning money on your knowledge or your wisdom, you're earning money purely on having money. That's right. Right. The same's true of debt, right? You mm. create debt on debt just by having it build up. And so interest, 
in both directions, positive and negative, right. operates as an accelerator away from zero, right? Yes. The farther you get away from zero, the faster you're going. And so as a result of all that, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And that is absolutely true. Those in debt will continue to stay there unless they achieve sort of extraordinary things. And we see those stories happen, right? And they're the ones that are told to us by the, those in power that, well, you can, you can lift yourself out of debt. Well, you can, but you know, I, I saw some statistic recently that it said, and I don't remember the, the dollar amount, but that for someone who's in debt, and I'm just gonna make up a number of $20,000 in debt, it takes seven years of everything going right and nothing going wrong in your life. Your parents don't die, you don't get sick, you don't get divorced, nothing bad happens wow. for seven years, then you can get out of debt, right? And so wow. the power of that separation is, is really extraordinary and it really touches people's lives in a really meaningful way. That it kind of makes me feel a little better about myself for my challenges with debt historically. It's right. like that yeah. that is what it feels like. It's like things have to go perfect. Like I have to be like accelerating at my business um and and have no hiccups uh yeah. and and really rein it all in to possibly get out of debt. And I'm a quote unquote privileged person that had, yeah. you know, a leg up on things. <laughs> so <laughs> extra, right. extra, extra serving of guilt for this one. But um <laughs> I, I think it's, you know, that, that what you just said there about, you know, interest acting as an accelerator in both directions away from zero. Um, in a certain sense, there's some kind of like biological, uh, natural correlations to that of where like the, the downward spiral of negativity and depression, it's like the more depressed I get, the harder it becomes to, right. to, to get, you know, to feel better. And similarly, the, the virtuous cycle of when, uh, I, I generate self-esteem and self-actualization and uh, confidence in the dopaminergic cycles and all of those things that it, it, you know, uh, success begets success. Mm -hmm. And so in a certain sense, this seems like a natural uh, mapping onto that, but nevertheless, doesn't mean it's like, okay. It doesn't mean we should not try to um, optimize the system where we can. And, you know, I just want, once again, just double click on what you said before about pragmatic radical of mm -hmm. that. Uh, I think that's one place where you and I clearly align is we're not saying we're not looking for the new paradigm of like, let's burn this sucker to the ground so that then the game B can come online. And I think just in my experience, new paradigm thinking like that it, it tends to be a signal of something else psychological going on, not to offend a whole lot of people out there by saying that. Um, but like I've had more success by working with the system as it is and being radical in relationship to that. Right. Yep. And it's taken me, you know, I'm turning, uh, I turned 50 here in just a couple months and it's taken that long <laughs> for me to come around to understanding the world that way. And, and I really am both sympathetic and empathetic with those who see the system is so broken, we have to burn it down and start with something new. I don't yeah. disagree with the sentiment at all, right? I just think that because of sure. where we are and the power of the systems and the, the, the power of the flywheel, we'll talk maybe a little bit later about my, my sense of how the global um, economy is a big flywheel, right? It's just spinning too fast and we yeah. can't, the idea of throwing a wrench in it to stop it is it's just not going to happen. We thought it was going to happen in 2000, 
right? We had the dot-com bubble burst. We had 9-11. We had Y2K, right? It seemed like the whole world was coming apart, it seems. And the only thing that changed from that is we take off our shoes at the airport, right? <laughs> Everything else is pretty much the same, right? And then 2008 came along. You know, and it was the, the financial system as we knew it was was minutes away from collapse as far as we all knew. Right. And it turned out that no, it wasn't that we just changed the rules to the game. Right. And we keep the whole system going. And, and I think when you look at the organizations like the IMF and the World Bank and, and these other organizations, it, they're not talking about like they're not talking about disappearing the system and people will come people will come up and they'll say oh the dollar's going to crash right we can't possibly put this much debt out there like even if the dollar crashes which i really don't think is going to happen in our lifetime it'll happen someday but then what's going to happen is i don't know some combination of the world bank and the un and russia and china and the eu are just going to create a new global reserve currency and right. it'll seem at the time it'll seem like this really big transformational thing but Five years in, you'll just be pulling out dineros instead of dollars out of your wallet, and nobody's going to care the difference. They're just dinero, it's gonna dinero coin. System. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, that, frankly, is what I I hope happens is that there's there's a there is an evolution and an improvement of things as they go along with fits and starts, perhaps, right? You know, yeah. in in blips. I think at best, that's that's what we can like try to participate in the successful. That or at least that's what I'm aligned to. Um, I kind of plant a seed of maybe future topics. I started tracking the collapse thinkers when the pandemic first happened. Just yeah. kind of like, well, what does really wrong look like? And the people that really believe in collapse are like, no, this is this is the beginning. This is how it looks, and it's just going to go from here. But I think when I talk to the to financial experts like you, it's it's like, well, well, really, you know, what does that look like as far as it, it, the the market's actually suffering in a big way? And of course, it's all unknown, right? There's there's trends that we followed historically, but I think being as rational as possible by you know having conversations like this as as informed people as we can come across is my best strategy for how to to prepare for each next day. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. I mean, another thing we had talked about the other day was the the new documentary, The Social D Dilemma, that just came out um, that is, has really been making the rounds in, in a lot of the circles that I travel in for good reasons. And that's okay. for those that haven't come across it. It's about the social networks like Facebook being exemplar where all good intentions, but when things go on to autopilot with AIs, uh, that there's an alignment issue there. And if we're talking about existential risk and in, uh, artificial intelligence terms, but you know, things start negative consequences start to happen that uh, just didn't fit into the way that we are looking at things before, and is creating a lot of problems that we couldn't have foreseen. And so th that's really the the issues that we constantly have to keep our eyes open around. Well, and I think that one of the reasons and one of the places when you want to talk about a disaster of capitalism, right, it's really well illustrated in that movie, right? You had the beginning of these social networks. And, you know, as someone who was, I was one of the first 25,000 members of LinkedIn, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been, I've been sort of at this whole social networking thing for a long, long time now. Right. Than it, accepting your, your friend requests for a long exactly. time. Exactly. It was, it was really profound at the time. Right. I just I don't want to lose track of like all the good things that have come from social networks. And then, you know, and then, and then in one case, they added the like button, which they thought was going to be this great thing. And they, nobody for a minute thought about 
increased teen suicides as a result, as an indirect result of the like button, exactly. right? And nobody saw that coming. And it's they, they didn't do it on purpose, right? Similarly, I think the same is true for the financial model, right? Where like, yes, obviously, like they had to come up with a financial model that advertising was the answer. Did they think at the time that they were going to now be manipulating the collective mindset of humanity? Well, they kind of should have, right? Because, I mean, it's been a problem in media for a long time, right? Advertising and manipulation, like all the way back to Orson Welles and before. But the scale, so they, they kind of, I think they should have known. But in the end, like they were just trying to make a business model that made their business work. Right. Yes. It wasn't we, we, we think of Facebook and Google as these huge companies now. But back in those days, they were just scrambling for survival. And so they just did what they had to do to make it make yeah. sense. But what happens is now they've got so much power. Right. And I think of, you know, to kind of switch our metaphors midstream here, I think of, um, you know, the financial industry and the oil and gas yeah. group together. You know, they're yes. actively lobbying against improvements in our legislative and governance systems that purely because of a profit motive, like for no other reason, you know, and that's when we get into a disaster, right? That's when we've kind of lost our way. And so can we systematically restructure our systems to make it more fair? I mean, that's the real question. You know, can, will someone um, really hold Facebook to account or are they a nation of 2 billion people that's simply too powerful for that now? Yeah. And, you know, I want to save a a lot of this for for another episode specifically on uh, social media and such, but just to continue addressing it for a minute, I'll, I'll come out of the closet. Like I'm pro Facebook, I'm pro Zuck. And uh, to what you were saying, it's just like, there's a lot of good in evolution and kind of what I see as the town square of where we go to get our, you know, latest news. And is the town square the safest place in town? No, you got to kind of have your wits about it. You got to have your street smarts. You got to know that someone's going to try to steal your login to your bank and going into the town square. And frankly, as a business owner, I think the the business model that they chose is quite elegant. You know, it allows people to use the platform for free for no more than the cost of tracking their behaviors of of what they do so that they can be, you know, shown more accurate uh, products for their consumption. To me, I'm like, I'm always such a fan. It's like, no, I want to see how they're going to track me. And maybe I have a better idea of what Christmas gifts are going to be this year uh, or or something like that. uh, Well, um, it's interesting to think about it too, from a financial and a, and a, and a business perspective and an ethical perspective, but coming back to whole wealth. So let's take a look at Jack Dorsey, who, if I'm to believe what I read, seems like he's one of the more enlightened leaders of those companies, right? That he has a worldview that is inclusive of, you know, a pretty, um, you know, a pretty contemplative practice. His behaviors are certainly, or the Twitter's behaviors are certainly leading the pack in and pack. so, yeah. So think of think of being Jack Dorsey. Imagine if you or I were in Jack's shoes, and we said, "Okay, we fully acknowledge the problem, and we want to do something about it, right? And we could charge a membership model. Let's charge everybody twenty five bucks a year for Twitter, right? I'm just going to make a guess because I don't know any of the numbers. But let's say that that, that resulted in a twenty five percent decrease in corporate revenues. Now, at one level. That'd be fine. Like Twitter has a, you know, makes a lot of money. And so to reduce overall revenues by 25%, still a profitable company, everything would be great. They're operating better. And let's even say Jack wants to do that. Let's say that he's aligned with me in my in, in values. When he takes that to his board, when he takes and, and when his board has to take that out to the financial industry and to the investors, what are they gonna say? Hell no. 
absolutely no way. There's zero. You're fired for even you're saying. Fired. That's exactly what they're going to say. You're fired, and they're going to install someone who will change. And that is the disaster of wealth, right there. Well said. Yeah, it misaligned incentives. You, you use a really good example there. Um, like Zuckerberg and these people know their business better than anybody else. That a lot of people just don't understand what it's like to run one of these brand new global platforms that has so much power. And it reminds me of when I was running the Integral Center in Boulder, and I'm sure it was true for you at the Impact Hub. There was a lot of people that had their concerns and criticisms about things happening with the business, and they would they would offer the feedback and be like, "Well, this is you know this thing might be offending me in a certain way or something like that." And it's like, okay, well noted, and we're focused on like keeping real bad stuff <laughs> from happening, right? right? Like like we are deeply invested. We know where things are are really unhealthy and we'll do our best with everything else and, right. and we can't we can't be perfect. And yeah. so um but the the point that you came to finally is 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 really important there because when I decided to close the integral center, I actually had the option to do that because we were su more successful than we had ever been at that point, but not so successful that it was going to completely derail too many people if if we unplugged it. And That's right. I, I called it defusing the bomb. But like uh, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't so successful that I it was a, a runaway train, a headless horseman that I couldn't disable. So I feel very fortunate <laughs> that that my business wasn't wasn't successful and I was able to do something respect responsible for the community <laughs> right. or yeah. responsible for me, at least. Or for right. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, I can relate to you. And it's I think it is hard. And so it it puts undue pressure on people, right? It is, I think that like the real unfortunate, like human breakdown. Okay. Well, let's, um, let's go just one level deeper on the disasters of wealth. We kind of see the kind of pragmatic structural misaligned incentives and things like that. I want to go one le level deeper, which this I think came across to me when I started reading, reading like Charles Eisenstein and thinkers like this that said, no, the, the, the way this whole system of wealth and growth, specifically mm -hmm. growth economies and consumption is, is sitting on a rocky foundation, is sitting yep. on a, 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 it's a problem because we'll just do the math in your mind, right? If we keep on uh, growing in consuming, it's a finite resource. It's it's gonna we're gonna take up too much space. It's that's not gonna work. And that's kind of like a remember the the population bomb book, you right. know, in the seventies. Hey man, it goes all the way back to um, Dr. Seuss and the Lorax, right? He had it pinned down really well fifty years ago or whatever. Totally. So. Which it's funny because that was one of my favorite. Like, especially when I was in my 20s, like the Lorax was like canon. And now I, I kind of look back at it now and just be like, mm, yeah, that's not, you know, it's a little slightly partial there. The idea with, you know, the population bomb was like, you know, no, if we just keep, if the population keeps growing at this rate, we're going to use up the planet's resources. But that, of course, has been, that's played out in many different ways. And and we've actually done the real math on it and shown that that's not actually how, how it works, that there's actually, you know, through, um, uh, dematerialization through ephemeralization that actually we get better at how we manage the species as we grow and, and, and sure there's plenty of arguments against that but i can i can point to uh, a lot of arguments that go against you know how the population bomb was was a bit of a chicken little speech and uh so similarly i look at it's like okay let's play this one out what do you think about this whole notion that just 
economic growth as a foundation is going to send us straight into the handbasket of hell, whatever metaphor we want to use. Sure. Yeah. There's one of those metaphors. Insert your favorite metaphor here. (laughs) Um, I, you know, as usual, like the, the more you peel the layers of the onion, the more nuanced it becomes. Right. And so it seems clear that we've got to stop burning down the forest before we don't generate any more oxygen on the planet. Right. Yes. But there are different economies, I think, is the important thing to understand. Now, there's a goods economy, right, a material economy where we heat, beat and treat natural resources into items. Right. And we can see it. I mean, the most egregious of them right now you know, is the creation of these um, electronics, right? And we're digging up these rare earth materials that are highly toxic, right? And we're effectively enslaving 10-year-old African girls to do that work, right? Unacceptable and unsustainable, period. We have to figure out another way to do that. Yes. Then there's the services. So, so that's, the, that's the material goods economy, right? We can't, we have to, we have to stop making new shit all the time, right? The whole planned obsolescence and having a a dryer or a washing machine that freaking dies after five years when 50 years ago they used to last 50 years, like that is gross and needs to stop, right? And we've got to stop wasting materials like that. Yeah. And let me, I'll, I'll just jump in there for a second to, to, to further <laughs> bolster my point. But uh, one, of, one of the favorite books I read this past year was More From Less by Andrew McAfee, uh, mm-hmm. where he goes further into dematerialization. And actually, like a lot of people love to hate on smartphones or like take the Apple iPhone sure. for this res, uh, reason of planned obsolescence. They're like, no, this thing clearly just dies on you two years in and you have to go dig up more precious metals on the other side of the planet to, to spend $1,000 too much for this new phone. And that's an easy argument. But on the other side, if we look at how many devices the iPhone replaced, uh, you know, I mean, over a dozen different devices that, that ate up way more resources. Absolutely. And I think that the, the, the point that I was really trying to make is there are multiple economies, right? So there's this, there's this material economy, right? And I think yeah. that we need to keep a really close eye on that, right? And, and a natural resource economy that's inclusive of energy, right? Which yes. we also are really uh, concerned about, right? And so then we move um, into the, the services economy, right? Which is more and more of the American economy, right? Which is personal service. Now, nice. like the problem there is really effectively like, is it is it ethical, right? Are are we like treating one another fairly? Do you know what I mean? Is it fair that someone's that there's one person who's metaphorically speaking flipping burgers for seven or eight bucks an hour, you know, and in the overall scheme of the economy, like is that sustainable? The services economy though has a very different drawdown on natural resources than the material yes. economy. Then we get to the digital economy, right, which is another layer. And I think the thing that people lose track of and they say, oh, is it too late for Google? Is it too late for investing in these technology companies? No, the difference in how the manufacturing economy works and the digital economy works is substantial. So if I'm Microsoft and I create my millionth or billionth license for Office, my effective cost of that license is zero dollars. Right. All my R&D is already sunk in there, everything else. And I can't really there's no additional cost to delivering that. Same with Amazon Web Services right there. Like there are additional costs for another server as opposed to the revenue that goes into that. That comes out of that is it's it's infinitesimal the cost of the additional hour of hosting time for Amazon. 
completely yes. different than manufacturing a car. And then, man, then, then, uh, you know, Tesla's a bad example, but let's, you know, let's pick yeah. on a, a Ford or a, a Toyota, right? Like they've, for every additional car that they create, they've got hard costs. They've got pollution that's going into the air. They've got resources that aren't getting renewed coming out of the ground. Like it's a completely different economy. So is growth bad? Hmm. Too simplistic a question. Like you yeah. can't really get there, I don't think. Whereas what you're really looking for is, your point about how do we grow? Yes. Right. And so I, I talked about it earlier, but I think that the the question really becomes: I think that I think of the global economy as a massive flywheel, right? And it's spinning; nice. it's really big, it's spinning really fast, right? And so we've seen all these things, like a, a massive virus hasn't derailed it. Like there's been a bump in the global economy, but the global economy is not going to stop because of it. Right. Um, we've thrown a lot of different things at it. And we've always said, oh, well, that's now the economy is going to crash. It just doesn't happen. And, and, and think about it in terms of the Internet. Google is Google worth less now than it was a year ago. No, of course it's yeah. not. Right. Is Google going to stop functioning anytime soon? It's not. Why is that? Well, it's the Internet's ubiquitous. I mean, it literally will outlast humanity, I think, at this point, right? It's it's in satellites around the earth. It's in renewable energy power data centers on the earth. Um, it, it's, it, and so the global economy sits on top of the internet now, and it's just going to keep running. And so the question is not whether or not it's good or whether growth is bad or any of those questions. It's essentially for me, it's like, how do we move the axis of the flywheel? Nice. Right, we're nice. not going to stop the flywheel from spinning. I don't know how. I could even say I want to. Let's even say that, like, I'm going to go to my most radical side of my my yes. pragmatic radical and say, "Yeah, I want it to stop. This needs to stop." Okay, <laughs> great. Let's all agree that we want it to stop now. How are you going to stop it? I don't even yeah. know how to stop it. Right. And so, what if we just what if we tilted the axis? Right. What if we changed the way that it was spinning? Right. And to your points about dematerialization, to digital economy, to to reuse, right, to regenerative economics. I mean, there's a lot of answers to the question, how do we tilt the axis? Right. But I think the idea of stopping it and starting something else is it's a nice idea and it'd be a great fantasy book to write. I like it. I like Charles Eisenstein as a person and as a writer. But sure. I, I, Charles, how are we going to get from here to there? We have to start somewhere. We can't start at zero. We have to start where we actually are. Yeah, that's very well said, Greg. And I, I think as I've grown and and kind of just seen more in my life, I see more how the traditions have passed down to us many solutions to a lot of these questions that are somewhat hidden in plain sight to my my eyes of last decade and things like that. What I'm hearing from you, it's like easy answer. The short answer to uh, is growth bad. It's kind of like like an easy yes, but it's much more complicated uh, in the long run. And maybe we shouldn't throw our bodies on the gears uh, anytime soon uh, to 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 stop what's happening. I mean, you can. Do you know what I mean? Like throw your body on the gears. Like I think there's a role for everybody yeah. in, the, in, in this transition, you know? So I'm just saying, I don't think it's going to be effective. Agreed. Yeah. You and I are on the same page. So, okay, good. I think we've, we've uh, teased out some of the broader strokes of why people are upset with wealth and, and money. Um, obviously there's plenty of more we could be said there, but let's, Let's switch over to the other side of the argument, and let's talk about the dignities of wealth and money. Let's talk about what can this do good for us? 
what's beautiful, what's true, what's virtuous about this currency that we can participate in? Wow, it's an interesting question. And what's virtuous about the currency, I, I almost think you give it too much credit. <laughs> like, like, what's virtuous about a rake? <laughs> oh. Right. Oh, don't don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like and pickaxes and shovels at the door. I mean, like you know, right? Uh, pickaxes don't kill people. People armed with pickaxes kill people. Right? Like like it's it, so money is a tool, and it can be and it's been designed and it can be redesigned. Right? It can be used for greed or it can be used for charity. Right. Yes. It can be it, it, it depends much more on the spirit and the intention of the person with the wealth than it does with um, with with the actual tool itself. Now, the tool itself is designed with interest baked into it. Right. And so it does move you away from zero faster. And so if, if everyone kind of understood that, you know, I think we'd see a different scenario in student loans and student loan debt. Right. That's a real, very real problem in our society. Um, but it is incumbent upon either wealthy families or corporations or the government to excuse that debt. And it, that's a completely do solvable problem, yes. right? The, and so one way that we can think about it is doing good things with money. And, and frankly, like wealthy people do good things with money often, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and a really simple way to think about that is the American public library system was funded by Andrew Carnegie. Of course. It just was, you know, and so we can talk about all the bad things that happened from oil and gas and all the things, and it, it may not balance out and it may not be fair and all of these things. But in the end, we have public libraries because of Andrew Carnegie, not because of the federal government, right? Not because of any of these other things. So I think that we, um, and, and, and we can do it at much smaller scale, right? I mean, one of the things that's been really moving to me, Robert, and I'm going to bring it into our friend group here, um, is there's been this meme running around Facebook this week about, um, recognizing that people may be struggling in these times, right? They may be struggling emotionally. They may be struggling economically. They may be struggling um, spiritually. And so there have been a number of us who've reached out and said sort of, we've been through hard times, right? We've been through um, difficult times financially and personally and, and um, psychologically and the rest. And we're here to help, right? One of our good friends, Craig Tabor, like posted on Facebook, he, he runs a meat delivery business. Like, yeah. we'll make sure people get fed. Right. Others of us have said, like, if you're if you're kind of freaking out and can't deal with it anymore, and you're, you're like really struggling with isolation, like give us a call. And so that's wealth. That's wealth of social capital. It's wealth of financial capital. Right. It's wealth of human capital. Right. Wealth of our own um, uh, well-being to say, well, I'll stay up late, Robert, and talk to you. If you really need support, emotional support, like I will give up some of my sleep, you know, come sleep in in my basement and we'll stay up late talking about it. And you'll feel better at the end. You know what I mean? We'll get you through the night. And so that's the dignity of wealth. Yeah. So super pragmatically, right? If, if wealth and money is another yard tool for, yep. for cultivating our garden, then right. it, it can be used for taking care of each other, for, for enacting our own virtues and values. It is a tool right. in that direction. And, you know, I think, in a certain, that's one of those so simple. It like goes without saying, but nevertheless, it, it deserves to be saying. If we're talking about, you know, we we don't want to do away with transactional wealth um, if if it's going to prevent us from being able to transact generosity. 
to our community unless someone comes up with a better way to do that. And and I think even more broadly for me, it was when I became uh, you know, a, a business person, when I really wanted to help the world and solve problems in the world, I realized, well, it's like there's some very well-made vehicles for problem solving and innovation in the world. And they're called businesses that actually this whole business system I wasn't looking at it through the lens of, oh, how I could manipulate my neighbor and, and grow my greed. I looked at it through the lens of like, no, this is built for me to innovate and solve problems in the world. It actually wants to help me do that. And that by participating in that system, I could bring my ideas. And, and now that I'm operating as an executive coach, I get to be on the front lines of seeing how business innovators are solving the world's problems <laughs> to the best of their abilities. And is it, you know, the, the best well, possible are, way it could be are. happening? You know, well, of course. I, I think, right. Some are really trying, you know, and, and I think others are still greedy SOBs. Right. Sure. I, I think there is a spectrum. You know, the ones the ones that are greedy SOBs aren't always hiring coaches. Uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, good. So, so we got that. So, uh, it, it helps us do good things. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that you helped bring my attention to of what's happening in the world right now is what, what used to be called socially responsible investing Yeah. in that where, you know, once again, through the old lens of just like, Ooh, once I have money, I'm going to, I want to put it into a system. Let me find an investment advisor. You like you just make me make more money out of it. And that's, Believe me, that's still important to me. But what you showed me is is what I think it was like 20 years ago when I first started looking at socially responsible investments. And there were some funds out there that like seemed really virtuous, but they also died, you know, 18 months later. And I'm really glad they didn't have my money when they died. Um, but now it's pretty much mainstream of what is now called ESG investments. Um, so yep. can you... Yeah, let me, and I'll take. A, I'll, I'll I'll try to cover, you know, fifty years of history on this in, in not too much time. But you know, no so it, it it started actually. It's really interesting. It started as many things do as as a religious movement, right? And there were groups of religious people who said, "We don't want our money to support killing people," right? And so we're not. We're going to say we don't want to invest in gun companies anymore, right? And then that became tobacco and gun companies. And, and you know, that, that category expanded over time, right? But it really started right there. And then people, and then, you know, and then I think that you have to kind of see that at some level, the beginnings of the sort of eats meets West mindset, right? Which we were fortunate that like Boulder was one of those places where that really happened, right? But people began to get a more broad understanding of their role in the world, right? We yeah. saw the first photo of Earth from space, right? And we started to see in different ways, we're kind of all connected, we have this bigger responsibility, we're part of something bigger than just us, right? And so as we did that, we said, oh, well, the money system's really important, let's do something about that. And so, they, and so that's when SRI came around, they said, we wanna do the right thing with our money. And basically that was about not investing in the bad guys, right? Yep. That was step one was SRI. And that was really important, but it wasn't rigorous, right? It was, it was, it was almost all heart. Um, and they were very smart people. I don't want to sound like the people who did that work, several of whom are friends of mine and mentors of mine. Of I don't want to say that they were stupid, 
but they, it was simplistic compared because they didn't have the data. And it was a beta, beta version. Done, yeah, exactly. And now what we've done is we've moved to the other side of the spectrum. Now we've got what we call ESG investing, right? And ESG is a proxy for sustainability and it stands for environment, social good, and governance, right? Which are the three big pillars that the system designers decided were the structure for how do we define sustainability, yes. right? And so now every publicly traded company reports, I don't know the number, I'm gonna say it's a thousand or so data points of really um, detailed minutia almost, right? Like for instance, like you can go look at, if you have the right access to the right data, you can go look at the, um, tons of carbon per million dollars of revenue for most of the publicly traded companies out there, right? And you can see who emits how much carbon. Yep. You can go look at another one that's important and easier to understand is percentage of women and minorities in leadership positions in a corporation. Yep. Right. Now, those are two very simple ones to understand, but behind them, there are thousands. And so now we've got this data um, that says, being a responsible, sustainable company is something that matters to us, number one. But also what we've learned over the last 10 years is it actually is correlated with better stock market performance. Yeah, And exactly. that is shocking to people. Um, although now, shocking to me. At least, at least in my world, that's table stakes, right? That's just a commonly under, common understanding now. And you see even the largest financial institutions stipulating to it. Merrill Lynch, which is by no means a progressive organization, now has a white paper out that says it's not about values, it's about value, Yeah. right? And so when you understand that um, something like uh, a, uh, an oil spill can affect a company's um, stock price, right? Or the cost of employee retention goes down as you're a more ethical company, Right? We can bring these things into single bottom line metrics that help the old guard understand why it's important. So that was a really important step. Now, that is pretty well. Now, it's interesting to see two things from 2020. First of all, more funds flowed into ESG managed mutual funds this year than ever before. And yeah. it's something on the order of one in five dollars now that's traded is in an ESG fund of some sort or another. Okay, it's 20%. Fascinating. Secondly, um, they performed better this year. Now, I have to be really careful and throw a whole bunch of caveats around financial performance um, because sure. of my license and responsibility with the SEC. But I'll say that broadly speaking, and you can go look up on Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal and any of the other articles, you can go see reports of how ESG funds have actually done better, you know, and there are a whole bunch of reasons behind that I can dig into if you want to. But so we went from the heart-based SRI to the mind-based ESG. But what's happened and, and what's happening now is we bring in a third category of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Yep. Right. And the UN SDGs are commonly agreed upon 17 pillars of how do we survive as humans on planet Earth for more than another 50 or 100 years. And now yep. there's a whole bunch of, now the, the, the newer funds are saying we're, and, and we as a company take the SDGs into account. And so we ask our clients where their SDG priorities are and we use that to help um, build their portfolios. 
so that's the that's the that's the the next step and then the next step out beyond that where some of the thinkers are way ahead of the market at this point is what we call systems change investing what are the companies that are actually committed to systematically shifting these inequities in the economy and and how they're going about that and so some of our advisors are talking to us about how SCI um, is going to be the next thing. Little too far out to be meaningful in any client's portfolio today, but the direction that we're headed. And so at this yeah. point, it seems clear that um, ESG, high ESG scores, and generally speaking, responsible corporate behavior is correlated with two things, better stock market performance over the short term. We don't have enough data to say that's in, indelibly true yet. And then the second thing is, there are more and more investors who are demanding that behavior of the corporations. And the most important of those is a guy named Larry Fink, which what a great name for a financial industry executive. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he has made a statement every year. He makes his annual statement to shareholders. Larry Fink runs BlackRock. BlackRock yeah. is the single largest manager of assets in the world, many trillions of dollars. Um, and he has said year after year now, that it is critical that corporations have a purpose and give back to society or they will not have access to capital in the future. Regardless of the, you know, greenwashing and hypocrisy and subtleties and, you know, and, and, um, and criticism that he receives from the far left, it's astounding in such a short period of time that he's moved to that radical of a position. And so we see these systems, SRI, ESG, SDGs, and SCI really fundamentally changing. And so I think the reason that I'm in this work and have been focused for this on this for so long is I think that's how we tilt the axis of the flywheel of the global economy is by introducing new rules within the system that already exists. Brilliantly. That, that was really great how you laid all that out, the, all that history and took us from socially responsible investing up through S ESG and the SDGs and now the new SCI uh, and, and what's ahead. And I think that's that's for me where the work that you had done and kind of how you introduced me to what was going on was a was kind of a kumbaya moment for me of where I got to let go of some of my cynicism of like, no, 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 you better not be putting any of my money in any of that conscious stuff. I actually want to like have a positive return um, into you knew you brought out some of the BlackRock guys and they showed us it's like, and this was four years ago yeah. that it, it's, it's no, it, this doesn't just mean your company can have like a little shiny brochure of how you care about the environment. No, you actually have to show us how your company is improving the environment, not just ma managing your negative externalities. And so they were talking about um, Autodesk, you know, the the, the company right. that makes right. AutoCAD and how they actually have features in the software that that shows it better energy performance and things like that and that basically yeah black like as you just said blackrock being you know the you know holds more funds than than anyone else and you have to have not greenwashing lip service you have to actually have a purpose and principle to to get money from them in broad strokes um that to me was shocking and incredibly uh optimistic, you know, like hope yep. fostering for yep. my outlook of the world is like, wait, we can make 
a positive return, make money, and make the world a better place. We can't actually do that. Why? Because humans are, are smart and innovative, and we care a lot. You know, one, one of my favorite examples that like brought it home for me so clearly, and this was actually one of the early events that we had at Impact Hub. There's a great group here in town called Green Alpha, and they create hmm. some of these financial products and, and really great organization, great people that run it. And, um, and uh, the CEO and founder was giving a presentation and he said, he gave this example of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett allegedly said, if I'm building a $50 million power plant, and at one power plant, I have to pay for fuel. And at the other power plant, the fuel's free. Which power plant would I build? It, it, right? It's really not that complicated. And so there are places and times when it's just better business, exactly. right? Do you, if, if, if you see coming out, you know, all the, all the Ivy, leagues, Ivy League schools and Stanford and everything, you know, all the, the studies of the graduating seniors say they would take as much as a, you know, quarter pay reduction to work at a company where they had their values aligned, right? That was, that's kind of old news now. That's five, 10 years old. But if you're in the business of retaining a high quality knowledge capital, you know, and that your company revolves around having the smartest people in the room, then you better make sure that your values are aligned with theirs or they're going to leave. That's right. And you can't afford that. You just can't. Not, in, not, not, not when we talked about the value of a data-driven economy. You can't afford to lose the smart people. You know, so you better make sure that, that your company is ethical in a way I think that I, th This is where the awakening, so to speak, is happening all over the place where it really does just make more sense uh, that people be taken care of Upstream and downstream is, uh, you know, our, our friend Dr. Tusek talks about, you know, working with eudaimonics. So we're going to talk right. about that in another episode as well. Um, but it's like a fair, what fair trade is doing. It's like, no, we're actually going to make sure that everyone involved in this whole supply chain is, is being treated ethically and that not only will consumers not buy your product if they, have a sense that you're not doing that, but you're not going to get investment money anymore if you're not doing that. And there'll probably be some fits and starts with maybe some overcorrections here. And that's what the right wing side of things are concerned about. And, uh, but ideally that's where, where, where my money is on is that we're, we're going to keep focusing on this and a lot of really amazing talent. And that's what has me so excited about what's the problems that are happening in the world right now with the pandemic, with the social justice movements is there's a lot of young people who are watching this and being inspired about what they're going to do with their lives. And they're probably smarter than ever before. And they get to come in and do some beautiful things for the evolution of our species. Well, and you bring up, you know, if we're going to, um, move into a conversation around where do we go from here. Yeah. To me, there are two really big trends that I think are critical to understand. And one of them you just highlighted, right? Essentially, one of the things that's happening now in America and around the world is a generational transfer of wealth, right? And the wealth is moving to people who are broadly speaking, women and millennials, who have more progressive, more responsible, more holistic values about the world. Yeah. And so in our industry, in the financial industry, um, the large corporations know it's coming and they still don't actually know what to do about it, right? They're so hardwired for profits above all else 
Yeah. That they can they can put lipstick on a pig, as a as a kind metaphor says, and and there are a lot of people on the left who will criticize Larry Fink. And if you want to go dig into like what's actually happening day to day at BlackRock, it's not as great as his statement sounds. It's not. They're still making like lots of decisions to make money off of doing bad things, quote unquote. But it's moving in the right direction. So that's yeah. one. This, this generational transfer of wealth, it's it's in the, you know, people, different people count it differently. Between 30 and $60 trillion of wealth is changing hands. We're probably five years into a 25-year cycle on that. Yeah. Uh, and that that's where I, I frankly get get very excited. Um, and like what I, I want us not to burn down <laughs> the kingdom because I think there's there's uh, more and more good things uh, ahead of us um, yeah. that that there, we're not on a downward spiral, at least from from my white privileged perspective. Um, and and the other, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Go ahead. Well, I was saying then the other side of it is Silicon Valley. Right. We've yeah. got all this historical wealth that's being transferred, but you've also had untold wealth, unimaginable wealth created in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years, 20, 25 years. And when that wealth collectively wakes up and decides to do something with it, as we see, we see anecdotally that happening. Right. But when it happens in mass. Right when all of a sudden all the venture capital funds shift their attention, when the when the truly the the when the new masters of the universe, the new Andrew Carnegies, the new Rockefellers decide to actually do something positive, the impact that they can have both through their understanding of the digital economy and the attention economy, but also with their dollars, right? Those two things coming together speaks to a possibility of a different economy than anything that we could really imagine as recently as five or 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is this has been really great, Greg. I think we've covered a lot of the important territory. Of course, I look forward to any you know commentary from anyone if we missed uh, something significant. And uh, yeah, so I, I wanted to see if you wanted to um, you know maybe just plant a seed uh, around this concept of. Uh, uh, modern monetary theory and maybe uh, enroll us into why should we care about this, uh, this yeah. new way of looking at things? It's, it's one of those things that uh, I hesitate to talk about, um, but I'll try to lay it out. And I do think it's another conversation to have. But so there's, there's a really great, great question being asked right now, which says basically, can we afford to continue creating debt? Right, like we're borrowing all this money. So, so for you know, we did it a little bit in the uh, in the in the 2008 recession, and we're doing it much more now in the COVID recession. We're borrowing all this money. Something on the order of seven trillion dollars got borrowed. That's close to a quarter of our uh, annual GDP, and that seems like a problem, right? On the face of it, like if if you borrow too much money, Robert, you talked about your own personal relationship with debt, right? We scale that up to a national level. Like, what if we can't get out of debt? The thing that's, so what I'm about to say now is definitely a theory in the sense that there's not a lot of academics behind it and there's not a lot of proof that it's true, right? Mm -hmm. There are people who are acting as if it's true and there are a lot of people who are talking about it, but it's unclear if it's really coming to fruition or not. But the idea is that there's a whole new theory of how money works at this scale. And that basically, if you're the creator of the global reserve currency, 
right, which is really just the province of the United States, the European Union, the UK to a lesser and lesser degree, and China, like if you're creating a currency that everyone around the world is using, right, then you can keep creating debt because you're also creating taxes. And so you kind of control the money flow on one side with taxes, you can take more money out of the system, and by creating debt, you can put more money into the system. And that really, mm -hmm. you actually control those two pedals, and that that's how you decide how big and robust your economy is going to be. And it's not this notion of, oh, we can't afford to borrow more money because we're going to run out of money. It's true, except when you're the people who make the money. Uh -huh. And so... I understand and believe me, like I, so I've been reading a bit about MMT now for the last couple of years because a lot of people are saying it's the way out, right? It's the way out of all this debt and chaos that we're in. I don't know, right? I've read a bunch of the white papers on it. Um, I've really dug in on it a couple of times. It really, nobody knows if it's going to work. It's like that, that time when, when, um, when they, you know, Nixon and, and and all of us came off the dollar came off the gold standard, right? They thought it was gonna something was gonna happen. They didn't necessarily anticipate all the things, and they, some people thought really bad things would happen that didn't materialize, right? And and now we live in a world of fiat currency, right, where right. currency can be made up. So is that going to continue? Um, we don't know. Is it fair? Probably not, right? Certainly not fair if you're Brazil, you know, right. much less Ethiopia, right? And so, but it works great if you're uh, Scandinavian or an American, you know, and, and can make that all happen. So um, there's a lot more to say about MMT. It's a really interesting conversation about what's possible and how can or will economic systems continue to evolve. Um, you know, to your point about collapse, I read the original Jared Diamond book, Collapse, in the 90s. Nice. And, you know, his point was no flag has stood for very long. You know, and that, and that probably the the stars and stripes is is past its due date. Um, but by the same token, like currencies change, like right, the, yes. the British pound is the one in our lifetime that has really shifted. And it was when we were born, the British pound was one of the most important currencies in the world. And now it's kind of like hanging on to the bottom of the top tier, right? In no short order because of Brexit, but for a number of other reasons. And so. It, it happens, things change, you know, and, and there's this notion, there's this fear among, I think, both the left and the right, that China is going to exert economic domination over us because they own so much of our debt, right? And yeah. they're going to call in their debt and we're going to be screwed because you have an idea that you would lose your house if the bank called in all of your debt. And so you're kind of playing that story up. Sure. The big level. But it turns out that like, China is also one of the biggest owners of our debt, and therefore, for them to devalue our currency, they would therefore devalue their own currency. Exactly. Right? And it's hard to understand sometimes the interconnectedness of the global economy. But to think that like China is going to crash the dollar and then they're going to take charge. You know, I had a, a long walk with a friend of mine 10 or 15 years ago, and we said, well, what's going to happen? Are we going to like have to sell Yosemite to the Chinese to pay off our debts? Like, right? Like, no, that makes no sense. You know what I mean? So, you know, we'll see what happens. So anyway, modern monetary theory is a really interesting concept, yeah. right? As to whether or not it's relevant or accurate. <laughs> well, thanks for teasing us a little bit about it. I would say that's largely over my head, but it definitely brings my attention to the fact that people that are more informed than me are 
more worried and thinking about solutions to these problems than I am, which it's like, as, as I come across that, it's like, well, of course that, that makes logical sense. Uh, but it's relieving when you come from a, an uneducated, arguably immature perspective of like, well, clearly this is where it's going to go. And, and my anxiety can, can latch on to that and keep me from uh, being productive with my own life. And, you know, always coming back to a perspective of humility that no, there, the things are more complex than they seem. If it seems like I've got it figured out, I've stopped listening. And there's, there's a, an opportunity to, to, you know, to trust and, and really just to, to look at some Wikipedia pages and get more informed. And get more informed. I will say that if you want to really, I mean, the Federal Reserve Bank, understanding how that works is a really critical piece. And there are some really great books written on that, including The Creature from Jekyll Island. And that's a huh. really good read if you want to understand kind of what the Fed is about and how it got created and why it exists and what it does. Um, it's, it's misunderstood by the vast majority of Americans and it has a massive implication on, um, on all these issues that we've been talking about today. Um, I'd like to close with, with two maybe really quick thoughts. The first is, um, is this notion of, we don't know who the good guys and the bad guys are, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to look at, so there's the World Economic Forum in Davos, right? And it's the gathering of all the truly influential people annually. It comes up in Jan at the end of January. Yep. And what's interesting is what's getting leaked from that, um, the planning cycles of that now, is something called the Great Reset. And it's being championed by Klaus Schwab, who's the founder of the World Economic Forum, and Prince Charles, who is a, a, a renowned, you know, sustainability and sort of ethical um, actor on the world stage, right? He's got this very interesting role of being, you know, late in life and, and still the heir to a throne that it seems like his mother will never uh, vacate. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so he's got this interesting role. And, and so they're talking about this thing called the Great Reset. And I don't know much about it yet. And I'm just starting to read about it. But it seems like they're saying we've got to make the global economy more equitable, more responsible, and do better job taking care of people on the planet. And so... Yeah. I don't know enough about it. It's already spawned a thousand conspiracy theories. Um, people on the left, people on the right are all pointing fingers and seeing, say, I told you so. I, I proved, that proves my point that they're out to get us. But I, I think it bears more attention to see if something comes out of Davos this year or sometime soon that actually says the heads of the banks, the large private families are actually recognizing that we've got to rebuild the system or rework the system in a way that is actually sustainable for us as humans on planet earth for more Beautiful. than 50 or hundred years. I love it. Well, thank you for cluing us in to that being having, having your eye on what's actually happening on the leading edge of these things. Uh, I look forward to getting more news reports from you and, um, you know, that just reminds me of a quote as far as kind of like, yeah, who are the good ones? Who are the bad ones? And, you know, it was, it was Gandhi that said the only devils in this world are those running around inside our own hearts. And mm -hmm. that is where all our battles should be fought. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's that's a, a consistent reminder for for myself as well. Um, but so that we can continue benefiting from from you being on the leading edge, how can we continue to follow you? Where do you publish? Where can we find you if we want to work more with you? Yeah, really great question. So uh, I've got a personal website at beinggregberry.com and uh, the company website, uh, Conscious Capital Wealth Management is found at consciouscapitalwm.com. 
more than happy to talk to, to folks about some of these issues. And, uh, you know, we're honored to work with uh, people with evolved worldviews and business owners and families in transition who, um, who want to understand these questions more holistically. Yeah. Well, we can nudge you to get like a, a, a Twitter feed or whatever. Maybe it's TikTok these days or something where we can uh, get a, get a day. Yeah, I'll, I'll do some interpretive dance, I think, on the economy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, this was as as fun as I expected it to be. Um, I, I, I it was useful for me. I hope it was useful for you uh, of those that are listening, and uh, I, I hope to continue the conversation going forward. So, thanks so much for taking time to share. Thank you, Robert. Always a pleasure. Awesome. Take care. All right. I know.